0: As property owners and investors, we want prices to rise, but as parents, we're conflicted. We worry that our kids will never be able to experience the security of home ownership. Many of us relish the convenience of city living, but don't give too much thought to whether or not our essential workers, we're talking nurses, teachers, and don't forget baristas, will be able to afford to live close enough to provide these essential services. And this is happening now in regional towns too, which begs the question, what's the true cost of rising house prices? I do believe that
1: there is, I think, growing recognition of the problem. I think that there is interest, genuine interest, I believe. I do believe that the vast majority of people go into politics and public life for very genuine, altruistic, you know, wonderful reasons. But these are complex problems and and it does take courage and it does take vision to turn it around.
0: download our free full or forecast report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephantintheroom.com.au today we're having an ambitious conversation we're tackling a huge elephant in the room as more of us increase our wealth through property more are being disadvantaged The gap between those who have and those who will never have is widening. Overall, home ownership is falling and the rate of home ownership for those under 35 has halved since the mid-1980s. Meanwhile, various state governments have been legislating in recent years to improve a lot of tenants but doing very little to improve stability for long-term renters. And the burden of responsibility for providing rental housing falls heavily on mum and dad investors who get sucked into buying some pretty ordinary apartments due to the dubious allure of negative gearing. And these investors, quite frankly, are the ones taking all the risks and should be able to expect to get a return to make it all worthwhile. Instead, they're at times demonised and those hoped for returns are often lacklustre you're getting a sense of how complex this whole thing is and probably why it hasn't been tackled by those in power. Joining us today to deepen our understanding of the far-reaching implications of this policy vacuum is Michelle Adair, CEO of the Housing Trust, which is the second largest housing provider in the Illawarra, delivering subsidised rental homes to over 2,000 people with almost 1,100 properties from Thirroul to Nowra. And last time we spoke with Michelle was way back in episode 66. We're so glad to have her back. Thank you for joining us today, Michelle.
2: Thank you. It's great to be with you again. Michelle, it's such a big issue and it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and it's amazing to sort of unpack. If we start at the sort of high level, I mean, what's your real gut feel of what's wrong with our housing policy at a big level, I guess?
1: Well actually Chris you're already using the right language you're talking about housing policy and that's what's fundamental to a different type of conversation and certainly different policy and then uh, experiences in the market while ever we talk about property and we talk about property prices and we talk about you know property escalation and I guess commodify property as purely a wealth creation vehicle mm. rather than talking about housing and the provision of the human right we're never actually going to close that gap and we're never going to be able to talk about it the right way so that's the first thing we have to have an ideological change where we see having a home as the first priority and then we see home ownership as a wonderful aspiration which you know Veronica described quite rightly in in her introduction as being being less likely for a growing number of people into the future.
2: Are there any places around the world, though, where you feel have got the housing policy right and and have got sort of fast growing sort of populations similar to Australia? Because that's obviously, you need to have a housing policy that suits that sort of population growth.
1: Yeah, look, the the kind of the poster child at the moment is Scotland, actually, who interestingly has a population smaller than the size of greater metropolitan Sydney. And yet they're doing really good things in relation to this first principle of the human right. And then after that, how do we make stock available? How do we make it affordable? So to give you an idea, it's estimated that nationally, we need about 36,000 more homes to be built for low income renters every year that's mm roundabout, so 36,000 homes is about 14% of Australia's yep. total residential construction. In contrast, the UK, Finland, France and Austria, about 20 to 31% of their annual stock is actually dedicated to low-income renters. So, that gives you some international comparisons.
2: So, we, we need about 14%, but what are we actually building at the moment? Oh, no,
1: we, no we, we, only, we are only doing about 14% right. at the moment what we need to be doing is more like 20 to 30%. so the the national shortfall Right now, tonight, for affordable rental housing is in excess of one hundred and eighty thousand homes nationally. Just in New South Wales, we're expecting new data soon about the social housing waitlist. It's published about this time each year, and we're expecting that to be around fifty-two to fifty-three thousand households on the social housing waitlist. And of course, that's everything from you know retirees to
0: young families and singles. And that's only going to get worse. Over time, obviously, as home ownership falls, I've always been fascinated, and I've said this on the podcast before, my sister lives in Italy, and whenever I've been there, it's been a while now, (laughs) could be a while before I get back there, but I I love to have these conversations with my brother-in-law, he's Italian, about the property prices, and he just says there's no price growth. Mm. They have quite low wages, and I'm always shocked, because things in shops cost a lot of money. You know, so like it's cheap to live there, but their actual it appears that their cost of housing is less, and that's rent, and they've got different rental tenancy rights and all the rest of it. But I guess the we, you know, in this country, we always talk about rising wages. We need rising wages. We don't have rising wages, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's all, you know, if you look at it as one package, you know, the actual cost of living rather than wages, then you know the the cost of accommodation obviously plays a huge part in that doesn't it
1: yeah, and it's completely skewed in Australia. We know that the cost of housing in Australia is is just another one of those league tables internationally where Australia is, you know, down at the worst end of the spectrum in terms of really, really poor uh, affordability. If you're spending more than 30% of your total household income, just trying to keep the roof over your head, you're in housing stress. Mm. And of course, what's happened in the market in the last 12 to 18 months, which again, you know, in reference to your introduction, every time prime rises and every time somebody's, you know, celebrating the fact that they've, excuse me for being so colloquial, screwed another 20 or 30 bucks a week out of a tenant, mm. you know, to increase their um, their rental returns, you know that that's actually really, really hurting and an increasing number of people on very good, reasonable full-time salaries are now eligible for the first time ever for... You know, technically, subsidised housing being affordable rental housing, and there simply isn't enough stock. Sure. You know, the the, the redevelopment and I, the the language the language is just so wrong. We we've just heard in the just the last couple of weeks in in the Sydney Press around a bit of a stash between the New South Wales government and, and Sydney Council around the redevelopment of Waterloo. Yep, um, you know that particular project to me, speaks volumes about how broken our housing system is. So, it's going to be about 3,000 homes, okay? Mm. So, supply increase, about 3,000. Only about one third of those are going to be affordable, which means two thirds are not. Mm. What on earth are we doing in this country where we're saying that that is okay to build residential property, two thirds of which is not
2: available to people. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And my understanding of that project in particular is they're taking down a lot of social housing already to replenish the stock that they just sort of knocked down. Is that sort of, so it's not even, I don't think the increase in actual like housing for, affordable housing is actually that much of an increase. Correct.
1: We very often only get back about the same number of social housing properties as we lose in those redevelopments. That's true. Often there is uh, a new mix for the first time in the addition of affordable housing. So the eligibility criteria and the the definitions of social housing is different to affordable housing. It's affordable with a capital A, it has to meet government ministerial guidelines. So you'll often see, a mix come back, which is a really great thing. You know, we want we mm. want diversity in our communities, but the net amount of social housing in just about all jurisdictions around Australia, with the exception now of very recent budget announcements in Queensland and Victoria, where they have you know wonderfully invested billions of dollars to try and catch up. The amount of social stock is going backwards, and there's virtually nothing happening in the affordable space.
0: Because there's been a little bit of uh, I don't know whether that's PR or whether it's misunderstanding on my part to think like there was a redevelopment in recent years, I think in Roselle Lilyfield area. and you know the sort of spin on that has been, well, yes, we redeveloped it it's much better standard of accommodation. We get more people in these new developments than there were before, et cetera, et cetera, but also because we can sell off some to the private market there we have more money to be able to invest in other areas to build more social or affordable housing elsewhere is that not happening no it's not happening
1: right well it's not happening fast enough it's not happening at volume and at scale and it's not happening in in a way that enables those tenants to maintain their relationships with their communities yeah so you know if you look let's 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 state the obvious, a lot of these old social or public housing estates and properties are an absolute disgrace. Mm. They're unhealthy, they're awful to live in, they're freezing cold, they're just terrible and they need to be replaced. Mm. One of the great difficulties that we have now, particularly for the large estate redevelopments, is that we've actually got nowhere that we can move people to in the short term while we, you know, redevelop. But then, personally, I, I do think we should have a policy that guarantees that tenants from those redevelopment areas should be should be guaranteed a home that is suitable and and fit for their needs and circumstances within a 10-kilometer radius would be would be reasonable, and it doesn't have to be necessarily back in exactly the same you know street address, but certainly within, in a community where you can maintain your relationships, keep your kids at existing schools all of those sorts of things. And given the really crisis shortfall in numbers, every redevelopment has got to have a very significant uplift in the amount of social and affordable. Because as I say, what, what is the point of, of making housing available if by government's own definition, it's not affordable? That, that just doesn't make any sense.
2: I mean they can definitely do that with new developments. They could come in really strong with what's going to get approved, it needs to be mandated that thirty or forty percent of development needs to solve this problem. What are some of the other things that you think the governments I mean the government if they really care about these problems, which I argue they don't, but you know, what are some of the other things that they should be looking at rather than you know, just mandating on new developments.
1: Well the the most critical thing is access to land. You know, it's it's the biggest cost yep. in any residential project and it's the the scarcest resource. All levels of government are sitting on very significant land and, and property assets mm. where they are either set aside for things like road reserves or, you know, maybe, you know, public use down the track, make those available on a meanwhile use at peppercorn rental to a not-for-profit community housing provider to to partner and deliver housing. Mm. That's an immediate solution where land or or property assets can be sold, then sell them again, at least with a first offer to a not-for-profit CHP. These are, of course, assets that are actually owned by the community in the first part, Mm. so they can be, you know, continue to be dedicated for public use. This constraint that most governments and most councils have this highest and best use. So, at the Housing Trust, we're in a position at the moment where we actually put in a successful bid for a grant to be able to deliver some affordable housing for, for older single women and women with children. And our proposal was based on a particular parcel of land. It happens to be owned by council. And they accepted our proposal, but then said, yeah, you know, we can't guarantee that we're going to sell this land. And if we do, we're going to sell it on the market to the highest public bidder. Mm. Well, that's just not okay you know, it is, I would argue strongly, not only is it flawed public policy from a human perspective, but we know that the investment in social and affordable housing creates jobs and it stimulates the economy in really positive and constructive ways. So, you know, I often talk about the investment in social and affordable housing for governments as delivering the holy grail, you know, they get jobs, they get economic stimulus, and they get positive health, education. And, and social outcomes, I uh, I just don't know what it's going to take to unlock the economic rationalists, if not the humane people, you know, concerned about livelihoods.
0: I'm keen to unpack that more because, you know, we live in a capitalist society, right, and that looks to w- at welfare as being a cost uh, as opposed to something that is valuable for, and uh, I guess the word welfare is, is loaded. You know, rather than something that actually is positive to for our economy. And I know even just watching, you know, listening to all the commentary around COVID and job seeker and job keeper and, and all that stuff being that you put dollars in the hands of those with least, and they will spend it and put it straight back into the economy. You put dollars in the pockets of those who actually have something and they'll save it and that doesn't help the economy at all. So, you know, there's lots of really interesting, hmm. I guess ways to look at, uh, at stimulating the economy. But I, I'd i like to really understand in more depth because if you're building a building and, and so you can say, well, there's jobs involved in that and, and et cetera, et cetera, the knock-on effect of that. But once it's full of people, how then does that help the economy in that particular area?
1: You're, you're absolutely right, Veronica. It doesn't. And the recycling of existing housing stock is not innovative. It doesn't grow GDP, and it does absolutely nothing except increase the wealth of people who are already probably wealthy enough to be able to buy a property. So, a growing number of economists, and in fact, some work just done by City Futures at the University of New South Wales, analysed the, the perspectives of leading economists, and we're talking like 80 or 90 of them in Australia, and as well as other property and housing experts, And it highlighted the fact that we historically know very well and understand the impact of the economy on the housing market. But we never think about the housing market and its relationship to economic growth, to productivity gains, mm. to you know labour uh, participation rates, workforce, and flow on. Of course, then to to health, educational participation, and, and and the like. So again, you know, right now we're we're living in the in the latest COVID outbreak here in Sydney. And you know so much of the, the the cases of transmission we know have been because of changes in the labor force and employment patterns where people have got to work a couple of you know casual part-time jobs and so they're traveling mm. around they're traveling large distances to work so this again is a direct consequence of a failure of governments to understand the impact of housing and housing policy and its location and its cost relative to all of the other parts of the Economy, <laughs> so
0: we we have to change that thing. It is it is fascinating. I haven't watched the full. I've read the summary report. I've I've watched some of the interviews with the professor, and we will include the the links in the show notes. And and I do want to watch the full uh, presentation. Very interesting. One of the things that occurred to me is that there's a, there's a challenge here of market forces because there's an argument, you know, that it, it's crazy that people should have to live so far away from where they work because that impacts on productivity and, tra- and travel time, right? And so I'm like, but the problem is you've got a market force there that allows people who can afford to to pay more for property that's closer to where they work you know and so it, it's so complicated to have to pull this all apart to try to work out how you could you could unpick it and unravel it and actually make it fairer and i'm wondering and then you think about decentralization that's that's come as a as a consequence of covid you know the amount of people moving out of the cities and and being able to work from home and clearly i think you know, you're probably talking about a cohort of people that can't actually work from home. They have to actually go out to work. But it appears that the interviews that we have done with people in regional Australia is that, that actually that's just exacerbating the problem everywhere. It's not just a city problem now. Would that be fair to say? absolutely and our, uh, and and our federal government has just you know started
1: a national advertising campaign with a few million dollars to encourage people to move yes. to the regions. Oh my god. <laughs> really you know i mean we 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 effectively have zero vacancy rates we have yes. in regional australia just about everywhere rental prices are, are at Typically, twenty to thirty percent above what they were this time Mm. last year. Mm. You know, we've got uh, one of our one of our examples just uh, just in Wollongong. We had a family, three teenage kids, both parents working full time, pretty decent jobs. In inverted commas, they could afford to pay seven hundred dollars a week rent, and they still couldn't find anywhere. Mm. I mean, uh, wow! You know, it's uh, and it's worse, of course, in in some areas some communities are still reeling and has still got permanent residents living in tents after bushfires mm. and floods you know we've got the impact of airbnb in some communities not not in others and we can't get essential workers and looking forward you know that the trends around the need to be able to really respectfully prioritize rental affordability not just uh, uh, at the moment we have uh, we have a federal housing minister so uh, minister Suka, who is the Minister for Housing and Homelessness, and and he he's he's very articulate about saying the government's priority is to prioritise home ownership and and where they can first home buyers. There is no mention of rental affordability and of the right uh, of people to be able to uh, rent a home and to be able to do that safely and securely. We know that the the number one reason that women are compelled to stay in violent and abusive. Mm. Relationships is because they have nowhere to escape to, and yet the National Domestic Violence Summit we saw wonderful budget announcements about uh, about increase in frontline domestic violence services um, last year in the budget, but the uh, the National Domestic Violence Summit that's that's had to have been postponed because of COVID does not have housing on the agenda.
2: Hmm.
1: That is unacceptable. Really, and and yeah, and it just doesn't make sense housing is not on the agenda there's stuff there about cyber security and there's stuff there about you know mental health and there's stuff there you know uh, all all sorts of good necessary things but the number one reason as i say that 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 women are are forced to either stay or or return is that they can find nowhere to live
0: mortifying why do you think governments you know tackle the affordability issue by basically Turning a blind eye to the fact that it extends beyond first home buyers, by basically throwing stimulus at it, which is just going to push prices up anyway. I mean, is that just all lazy policy? Look, I, I
1: think it's. I think it's fundamentally ideological. I, I think that culturally Australians have had this post-war battler, you know, get a home historically, the vast majority of people who lived uh, in public housing, as it used to be called, were people working, you know, in blue collar, full-time jobs, and they were actually able to move on and and very often buy a home. You know, the three of us are probably thinking about our own circumstances and the fact that we probably all have Mm. mortgages. And there is this as as a as a mum, I have two two adult children. Uh, I am very mindful about what can I do personally to be able to increase my personal wealth, yeah. so that when I die, I know that my kids are more secure. Now yeah. that comes from from the best place, and and the vast majority of us are, are in that in that space, and you know able to do that wherever we possibly can, and and that's that's an admirable okay thing to do but we shouldn't be forced to do it because of failures in public policy mm. and that's the reality <laughs> i would not be i would not be doing mm. this if i was confident that that my children all of whom are full-time working adults in you know good professions growth industries could could actually be able to to be secure so you're
0: in, you're intimating yep. there that basically without a leg up from parents the next generation well, the current generation of young adults and the next generation of young adults really have got Buckley's have been able to do it on under their own steam.
1: Well, we know that that's a fact we 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 know that 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 is absolutely a fact and i share this from a very personal perspective i i chose to go public with my personal experiences of of homelessness in in the last uh, in the last couple of months so four times in my life i have been right on the brink of either homeless or very close to it mm. and through absolutely you know classic circumstances. My father died at only 46 very unexpectedly of pancreatic cancer. It was just a fluke that he had life insurance that allowed my mum to keep our home. Mm. Then I had the divorce when, uh, when my children were, were only uh, two and four uh, and my ex-husband declared bankruptcy and I lost everything I didn't. Forget Mm. a car, I didn't even have a home. You know, I didn't have a car, let alone a home. Ah. Fast forward a couple of years, I was renting, life was okay. I had a job and then my company, my employer went into receivership. Uh, After I paid my rent, I had literally $2 a week to feed and educate and clothe my kids. And, you know, I had a I had a girlfriend, I didn't know who it was at the time, but I had a girlfriend from school leave me a box of groceries on the doorstep so I could feed my, well, she fed my kids and fed us, you know, every week for months. And then many years later, I had a home again and my elderly frail mum needed to go into residential, aged residential care. Had she not had the good fortune of being able to access a veteran's gold card, we would have had to have sold up to uh, to be able to secure um, safe, appropriate aged care support yeah. for her. Now, my story is is a story that is only uh, a reminder mm. of how vulnerable every single person is yeah. and uh, and none of those things uh, because I was lazy, slack, uneducated or anything else. In fact, quite the contrary. The only reason that I've been able to rebuild our lives is because I was lucky enough to be, you know, privileged in my poverty yeah. um, through, through a good education and family and friends that could, you know,
2: help. Yeah. And the real issue there is that, you know, if any of those things didn't go to plan, right, and that wasn't a plan, but, I mean, if those things didn't, you know, know, get recovered, I guess, in some way, there's no real government sort of solution there for a lot of people who are falling through the cracks, right, and this is just getting worse and worse. So do you think there's, like, really two main problems? We need to get a a better longer term solution that's sustainable, encourage private investors, impact investing, et cetera, governments also on board to solve the long term issue there, but also the issue that's building for people around affordability because prices keep on going up. So there's two sort of main elements to this housing problem, the ones that, you know, are trying to, you know, buy their home, but also the people who aren't even trying to buy a home, just want security and stability and, and somewhere to live. Is it do you break it down to two or is there more?
1: Oh, well, it's look. It is a really complex problem, and 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 the only way we're going to solve it is all three levels of government, and private enterprise, and community housing providers, and and others in the in the community services sector working together, and just sort of saying. Can we agree, you know, this fundamental, firstly, as I said before, this fundamental human right? Uh, and can we talk about housing, not just this, you know, esoteric property market that, Mm. you know, we may as well be talking about, I don't know, something else, you know, some sort of manufacturing industry. So there are solutions at all levels of government and it does take dedicated effort. And there are some great programs. Again, you know, there have been really good case studies and and opportunities that that meanwhile use of state government land. You know, there's a project been going for years in metropolitan Melbourne where a community housing provider, the local council, um, who varied some of their their development controls and uh, I think it was Vic Vic Roads gave the gave the community housing provider peppercorn lease on i think nine blocks of land from memory mm. and they created seventeen homes uh, for the next ten to twenty years on this road reserve they did it affordably all very sensible mm. now exactly the same proposal was put to uh, New south Wales government by uh, a Council in southern uh, Southern New South Wales with their community housing provider and and the state government's response because of this highest and best use was well if we lease it to you it's going to be it's going to be a commercial rent well that's mm. just that's just not okay so there are examples of effective contribution schemes. One of the immediate things that can be done is an audit uh, in New South Wales of the effectiveness of the current affordable housing SEP. There is no way at the moment of ensuring that the – the benefits that have been uh, applied in the construction are actually delivered over time um, and we should increase immediately, the government could immediately increase the 10-year protection for affordable rental to 20 years and make it you know, make it uh, an immediate contribution there. Mm. Uh, We need to stop just thinking, as I said before, that supply is going to be the answer. (laughs) Um, Build to rent provides very positive uh, additional security, very often for tenants, but there's no guarantee that it's affordable. So, Mm. that's, you know, so we've got to, you know, we've really do got to have to break this down.
0: theelephantintheroom.com.au.
2: So the Labor government missed out the last election and a lot of people would uh, argue that part of that was they went pretty hard on tax changes, I mean, negative gearing, capital gains tax, um, franking credits, etc. Uh, and then yesterday they uh, tried at two elections to change negative gearing and then they said yesterday we're not even going to try at the next election and we're going to drop our negative gearing policy. Does that sort of just show that It's so hard for the government to sort of tackle the property market because the votes aren't in their favour. Look, there's no question that it's unpopular, but we do
1: need somebody somewhere uh, at some level in government has to eventually embrace tax reform. And to really understand it, in fact, I was also encouraged just in the last 24 hours to see that... Uh, the federal government is going to have a look uh, and start a new inquiry through the Treasurer has announced that uh, Mr Finkelston is, is going to be having a look at an inquiry around what is the uh, what is the the tax and the cost and the regulatory impact doing to supply. My concern, mm. of course, though, is that that announcement continued to be couched within the supply for home ownership. <laughs> no mention of, of rental supply. Um, I've yep. made the point informally and we will be doing it Formally, that that's not okay. And similarly, here in New South Wales, we've got a regional task force. There is an opportunity to talk about affordable supply in that, but it's not overt in the terms of reference. There are no targets set in the New South Wales housing strategy for the next 20, 20 years around affordable supply. So, you know, these mechanisms exist and and a need to be addressed and there is an opportunity i understand that about 70% of current homeowners actually have an investment property now it might be a weekend or somewhere you know that they're not actually planning on on making available to uh, to the regular kind of rental market, but there is a wonderful New South Wales government program and credit where it credits due and and there have been some very good initiatives. It's called the Community Housing Leasehold Program. So as a community housing provider, what I'm able to do, I get a grant of a couple of million dollars a year from the New South Wales government. And what I'm able to do is use that money to pay, in our case, the gap in rent that a private landlord would get by just putting their property up on the market to the to the highest renter compared to what would make it affordable to a social or, or an affordable housing tenant. Um, so, in our case, we get a couple of million dollars and in return for that, we have to add around 275 homes to the supply wouldn't it be great if we could have an inquiry that looked at how many mum and dad owners of, of you know, investment properties that they're currently negative gearing unsuccessfully. We know it actually doesn't really make that much of a difference. You're relying on um, on property values to increase over yeah. 10 to 20 years to get capital gains. So, we know that the negative gearing thing is a furphy. Um, although I agree with you, it, it does scare people when they think about how to cast their vote. But wouldn't it be interesting to to ask those people if there was a way that you could get the equivalent of highest rent if that's you know necessary for you? Fair enough, I guess in a in a in a market economy, but that the government would actually be able to access that supply through um, an extension of this very robust and, and proven program that we use here in New South Wales, this community leasehold program. Maybe that's a way of balancing the attraction of being able to get more stock, but also respecting the um, the financial and, and the rights of, of current, you know, mum and dad landlords. So,
0: okay, there's a, I would think there's an obvious opportunity there with all the inner city apartments and places like Alexandria and Mascot and whatever that are vacant because of the lack of overseas students and also because the exodus of a lot of hospitality staff and the first wave of lockdowns. There's a lot of stock there that's very difficult to rent out and rents have been dramatically falling the vacancy rates have trebled in many areas. Why isn't there some sort of, of uh, movement towards actually doing something with all of that stock that those owners are hurting?
1: That's a really good question. I don't have an answer for that. I, I think, you know, there, oh look, I'm a really simple soul. My life is complicated <laughs> enough and I, reckon it's a no, and I reckon it's a no-brainer. I see this stuff and I think, surely it can't be that hard. Mm. Surely it can't take that long. Surely... But yeah, I, I I completely agree with you. And for those owners, it might be a, might be a little uh, a little hard. I'm not sure if, if some of them may be for an investment or, or not. But it might be a little bit hard to, to track down my colleagues in community housing. Um, it's it it is always mm. surprising that we are the backbone and a third leg in the uh, in the residential property and housing market in in Australia. So there's you know obviously private developers and uh, and companies, there's government, uh, typically state agencies, and there are community housing providers everywhere. Um, and the housing market doesn't exist without us, effectively. And yet, we're often not seen. Don't get an official seat at the table. So, I,
0: I think I think it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, it's funny because PICA. We we, sh- we probably should get Ben Kingsley on to ask you about PICA, which is the Property Investors Council of Australia, and that's that's an organisation that was formed um and a few years ago, because individual mums and dads investors basically don't have a union. You know, we don't have a an association. Well, this isn't our association supposedly to to bring all those individuals together as one whole because they're not really at the table either. And and the big problem is that a lot of investors are actually sitting on dud assets. You know, so this whole idea about property investment is a furphy for many people. Forget negative gearing for a minute. And you know, and and I guess it bothers me because the negative gearing policy, and in fact the change to in the budget back in two thousand seventeen, really in, tries to in, increase supply because that is government uh, well politics on both sides of the fence say that supply is the answer, and yet it isn't the answer because you know now we've got a whole problem in New South Wales about building quality because there's been heaps of supply of, mm. of certain type of stock. But it's not actually solving the problem. It doesn't actually make for good investments and it's certainly not solving the affordability problem on on any level either. (laughs) So it's a challenge because basically we've got competing objectives of both growing and stabilizing the housing market. But we've got a system where, you know, the banks dominate our share market. The banks lend a shitload of money to mortgage holders. Um, Those mortgage holders obviously own property that they live in plus investment properties. And so then, you know, then you've got construction sector what employs 5% of of all Australians. So you've got a a very hungry sector that, Mm. that loves incentive and loves to have people incentivized to buy their Their product, you know what I mean. It's it's all very you know. You you mentioned earlier that you know we understand the impact of the economy on housing. I would suggest that, as uh, Eliza Owen said in our first interview with her, that the housing market in Australia is too big to fail. It is propped up at all in all areas, and that's because it's intrinsically cobwebbed. You know, it's 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 enmeshed with the economy. It's not separate to the economy. Absolutely, it is. I mean, he's he's no longer a, no longer a sexy
1: academic, but um, Maslow was kind of <laughs> onto something when he said shelter was the platform yeah. of the everything else mm. in your life. You know, and it's true. You've heard me say before. You know, you you can't. Get and keep a job, educate your kids, um, manage your health, or if you need to, move on to positive, happy, healthy relationships, unless you've got a safe, secure, affordable roof over your head. There is nothing that you can do in life without that.
2: Well, the uh, alternative to that is you go get that safe roof over your head, but you take out a big mortgage and then you get stuck in a job that may not to be pay paying that mortgage so you might be doing something that you don't love or you're doing something that's not super productive you're not encouraged to be innovative and start a business because you've got this mortgage and so yeah one thing's getting that shelter but then there's a product productivity on flow effect that um, you know just getting a house sometimes can cost as well
1: and all those life curveballs yep. that that we all experience, you know. There's there's some other there's some other really simple things that that you know we we certainly do at the Housing Trust as well with with our developers. I, I, I wish I I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody came to me and said, "Oh, I got a really good deal for you, Michelle." Mm-hmm. But even the even the fundamental design question has got to change, you know. And, and I think one of the things that we're certainly been very conscious of for a number of years is. Modest design and layout and things, you know. When did it become a thing to have a two bedroom unit with two bathrooms? <laughs> like, what is that? You know, I know there's
0: little bungalows that, you know, the, old, the, the Housing Commission bungalows are out of World War II and they let three very modest bedrooms with one bathroom. An entire family would share that one bathroom. <laughs>
2: Yeah. The,
1: vast, <laughs> the vast majority of Australians grew up in exactly yes. that. And, and by the time you consider, you know, the first or second generational, you know, migrant arrivals, my God, they didn't even have that level of luxury, mm. many of them. So, you know, it's <laughs> like, when did everybody have to have an ensuite? When did everybody, you know, like, that's just crazy. So, there's so there's a whole bunch of design features that we do like that. And, and and, and mm. of course, you know, community housing providers have always built to hold, built to rent is, is just our core business. So, you know, I love it when people think that that's a really innovative new idea. But anyway, mm-hmm. but things like building materials to make them, you know, lower maintenance cost, really thoughtfully thinking about sunlight and, and air flows, um, we do not put in air conditioning in any of our properties. Mm. Uh, and again, now isn't that a great thing post-COVID? So, we think through things like floor plans to really be very thoughtful now moving forward around what it means to to have an appropriate work-from-home space. I think there are going to be good design features and benefits come out of that moving forward. And, you know, modest homes is appropriate, you know, that not everything has to be, so, you know, some of that stuff around. Personally, you know, God, my my first house was actually, a (laughs) sounds very grand now, but it was rough as, Um, you know, it was an inner city terrace. It was built before there was, you know, sewer and running water. So the Mm -hmm. bathroom was actually a separate shed out the backyard. The dunny cart was down the, you know, well, the, Outdoor toilet was the original one when that got very upmarket, and there was a dunny cart used to come down the lane behind. Um, and geez, there was no, there wasn't a square corner in the in the house. I thought it was terrific. Mm. Now uh, I'm not, I'm not sure when McMansions again became the first home standard, but, but. It, it just doesn't make sense, you know. So there is a, there is an element of, of mm. personal accountability and personal realism that should be overlaid as well and personal responsibility for circumstances. <laughs> but, um, I agree because you all become a bunch of sport brats. Well, you know, I, I, <laughs> you can do very nicely again for, for us. So I, I will never, you know, Expect governments to solve all of my problems or all of society's problems with without um, us making individual and and corporate and in inverted commas, you know, contributions as well. But at the moment, there are so many things that are outside the realm of individuals to be able to influence. And, you know, again, a, another tragic story that that my staff are dealing with seven days a week. You know, we we received a phone call uh, from a, a, a quite mature age lady up on the central coast where her adult son and his partner have been living for many, many years. The property, they've just been turfed out of a home they've been living in for many years because the owner wants to maximize the uplift in, in values at the moment. Particular problem for mm. them, they can't afford anywhere else. And he's actually, the, the adult son is having chemotherapy on yeah. the central coast. So they ring us. We're based in Wollongong because they're so desperate to be able to try and find somewhere that they're prepared to try and drive two to three hours a couple of times a week, each way for him to have chemotherapy, because there is nowhere else for them to live. That is not their fault. This is a failure of the housing
2: system. What's your thoughts around the sort of empty bedrooms? So, you know there's lots of houses that aren't for rent right they're just vacant and investors sitting on the land value and there's no benefit renovating because they just want to keep getting the land value so you know that's a problem but there's also you know a lot of people in houses that are too big for them and you know as you get older the kids move out maybe they visit every so often but you know do you think that that's a growing problem where people are just staying in their homes for ideally too long for the next generations to sort of I guess, maximise the use of that house? Yeah,
1: uh, no doubt. Uh, we've got an ageing population and and, um, and again, are there places that are suitable for for people to be yep. able to afford to downsize too? Again, I, I'm sure we all know people in our own families and, and friendship or neighbourhood circles that are in exactly that situation. And I, I don't think, uh, I really don't think that stamp duty is, is what's keeping them stuck in places. I, I don't buy that line from the New South Wales. No. government at all. And in fact, if the change to land or the property tax goes through in the way that it will, it, it could have a very, very serious adverse and unintended consequences for all sorts of people that will make affordability even worse.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: But you know, nobody has a right to tell somebody in a three-bedroom home that they have to downsize and move out and, and make that space available for another household. <laughs> but at the same time, I think we do need to look very critically at is there alternate supply options available that are affordable? What is the cost of moving? You know, if I am a mature aged person, do I like the idea? Is it suitable for me to go into, you know, we know that there are major problems with the regulations around retirement villages. People have been burnt there because they are dominated not by providing affordable, secure, appropriate care environments in a wonderful, safe, you know, vibrant community environment for people to be able to age in place. They're profit-making, Let's get real about the motivation behind most retirement villages. So, yeah. so, again, we have this profit motive that's driving property rather than looking out of um, providing homes. So, you know, if there was more suitable, available housing options for mature yeah. aged people and there was assistance for them. As I said we think it's within about 10 kilometres, you know, as you get older uh, when my mum lo- moved into um, into residential care so not into a, into a retirement village but into, um, into a hostel into care, we were so lucky that we were able to find somewhere safe and terrific and local that her GP could continue to provide her with care so these are the sorts of things where we We've got to be able to look, and it's within that kind of 10-kilometre ring where you've got a pretty decent chance. So, what are we doing within that space uh, to be able to provide options that if somebody is, is sitting in a large home, that it's that it's viable for them? Could they perhaps do a redevelopment and turn that into a duplex? Could they? Could they? Could they? There's, mm. there's all sorts of things. But again, until we start having the conversation from a perspective of principle and vision – Rather than profit-making cost base, um, we're, we're not we're not going to have the right conversations. I don't think.
2: Very true. You could also argue that the person in retirement is thinking at a profit as well because. You know the tax laws sort of encourage people to stay in their homes. You know the uh, tax-free growth on their home for the next generation. If they, even if they're not going to use the money themselves, back to your earlier point is they might be thinking, "Well, I'm going to stay in my home because that's a good investment for my yeah, kids." Sure. You know, you've got the the pension test doesn't include the house. There's issues there as well. Even if they had something else to move into. They may take the profit route, which is, you know, staying in a home that's not really suitable for them because it leaves more money to the next generation. Do you think that that needs to change as well? The tax. Oh, look,
1: there's no, there's no doubt that we need tax reform at probably multiple levels to be able to both not hurt and damage people who have quite appropriately made housing and investment decisions in good faith for decades. We should not make changes in a way that that is really damaging to them, but nor can we pretend that tax reform isn't a significant issue in a broken housing system.
2: Yeah.
0: And does that fundamentally mean that it won't happen? (laughs) Nothing would change? Uh, look i you
1: know my glass is three quarters full and <laughs> and i've you know i'm i'm not gonna i'm I am not going to to stop banging my head on that wall yeah and I do believe that there is i think growing recognition of the problem I think that there is Interest, genuine interest, I believe. I do believe that the vast majority of people go into politics and public life for very genuine, altruistic, you know, wonderful reasons. But these are complex problems and, and it does take courage and it does take vision to turn it
2: around. Do you think you need to attack on the NIMBYs as well? Because, I mean… <laughs> The reality is, what's restricting supply? While it's the government, it's also the government have to do that because that's what's going to keep them in council and get their votes. So, do you think we need to really attack the middle rings of our capital cities?
1: Capital cities and, and our regions, unequivocally. But again, I would also be a very strong advocate for appropriate precinct, you know, or kind of local level planning. Mm. It is not appropriate to put medium to high-density housing in all areas. It is not appropriate to ignore, you know, railway station areas and, and precincts just because, you know, we haven't got any of that stuff around here. So, there's <laughs> there's always a middle ground. And that NIMBY attitude <laughs> is, is ironic because, of course, it's perpetuating the fact that, You know, the, the families and friends of those, of those individuals are also increasingly being priced out of the market. So we know that even as, as you mentioned, you know, before Veronica, that while there are no vacancies and we are at, you know, crisis shortfall in, in some areas, we have, you know, some suburbs or even some streets where there is enormous disparity between prices and vacancy rates and things. Mm. So we do need, and I think this is a, a very important role for our local councils. We've got local government elections now in in first week of December. This needs to be, you know, every, you, I would plea with everybody make affordable rental housing and housing affordability more broadly. An election issue with your local governments, ask them what are they doing, have a look at their plans, have they got anything in Mm. place. In my four local government areas, Wollongong Council has been working on their plan for about seven or eight years, so there isn't one. Shell Harbour Council, um, (laughs) they did – no, I'm serious. Um, It's been at least seven or eight years. Um, Shell Harbour Council, They they – published their plan in december 19 but it doesn't actually do anything for for affordable housing it's not even a conversation yet at Kayama council but Shoalhaven have got a very good plan with practical solutions and 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 tech. so you know like what is what is your local government area doing
2: and i think that pocket in particular is going to get a big problem the reality is we've seen a huge shift in couples and families in Sydney that you know wanting to get out and they've gone to say the north of Wollongong that's all got too expensive now they're buying in around Wollongong and they're buying in and and that's going to have a huge impact on those local mm. property markets because they've got budgets and capacities much bigger than what the locals have and, you know, they're going to push up prices and that's going to push up rents and all this well, sort of stuff. So, that that's,
1: that's yeah. absolutely right. and But that that scenario is is happening in regional communities, you know, right across Australia.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, in particular the ones that are piggybacking, well, not piggybacking, but they're, you know, close to the capital cities because there are going to see, you know, a much greater number of sort of buyers that are heading there because they can still commute.
1: Well, they can. But, of course, now, post-COVID, of course, people are realising that maybe they don't have to commute. And, mm. you know, I mean, we're seeing that our local business, Illawarra, um, commissioned some wonderful research from Deloitte on what has been the impact of commuting questions and, and employment patterns post-COVID and, yep. and how do employers adapt their workplace policies and, and practices to be able to accommodate those changes. And one of the things we're realising is that you would not perhaps sit on a train and certainly not drive five days a week to work in, you know, inner city, Sydney, or, you know, Chatswood, or wherever you happen to be, Parramatta. But you might do it two or maybe three days, because we know now that, you know, we can all can work from home at least a few days a week. And so, those sorts of patterns are changing. And that's been another driver of pressures in in the regions as well, particularly
2: around those capital city rings. Have you got a property dumbo for us?
1: You'll have to remind me what it is.
2: Just a story that we can or, you know, a lesson that you've heard or someone's done something where there's a mistake that can be avoided, I guess.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, that would be in relation to state and local government land that is actually owned by the public. So this is our mm. community land and where it's sold off ad nauseum to the highest private market bidder rather than being dedicated for use to help solve the affordable rental housing crisis. And that is happening in every council area throughout New South Wales and throughout Australia. So my dumbo there would be the people who continue to ignore that very significant policy opportunity and, and pretend that that's okay because it's not it 's just not, and if if the land doesn 't have to be sold, it can be kept under leasehold arrangements, so there is mm. you know, there is a, a thing in the act where, where our local councils have have got to be able to maintain their financial security as indeed they have to because you know we, we need them to keep fixing our roads and footpaths and collecting our rubbish and stuff, so you know like everybody else they 've got to be able to run their businesses financially sustainably, so if they need to be able to maintain their property assets, then at least make them available under 30 or 40-year long-term leases. The whole of Canberra, for goodness sake, is built on this model. It seems to work mm-hmm. okay for them. So, make that available so that mm. not-for-profit, and and I've got to stress that again, because we are seeing more and more for-profit providers starting to pretend to be in this space. It needs to be secured by not-for-profit or, or through not-for-profit providers. We all employ the private enterprise to build our buildings and, and you know, do our maintenance and in any case. So, it's not like the private market's missing out, but we exist for profit for purpose rather than profit pr- for profit's sake. So, that'd be my dumbo, make the land available for, for not-for-profit housing providers.
2: And if they do sell it, then reinvest those profits, I guess, back into social housing and affordable housing. Is that sort of the but that's not happening, no, I guess. No, it's
1: not. And and it shouldn't be lost. So, not-for-profit housing providers, you know, I mean, I'm one of the the smaller big providers. We are actually now the largest provider behind New South Wales government of affordable housing in, in the Illawarra by a long shot. We've, you know, we've got now 1,200 properties. And by Christmas, you know, um, our balance sheet's going to be worth $200 million. And we have significant debt and capital investment value and, and potential. So, what difference does it make if the land is, is sold to us rather than sold to the private market? Um, it can be sold with a caveat to ensure that the that the mm. stock is going to be delivered as, as affordable rental housing and that can be done for 20, 40 years, whatever you like, that's fine. Again, through our constitutions, if the worst were to happen and we would emerge or go into receivership, well, the title's still there to protect it. So, there's there's no downside. The only difference is Is really this this thinking around rather than being able to flog an asset to the highest bidder and be done with it, how do we optimise the return for that asset in a holistic way that is both? We must be. I've got to run my business profitably, um, but it's profit Mm. for purpose. So, how do we optimise that asset value in a way that is truly sustainable and that is financially and socially and environmentally effective? We also know that for Australia to attract The levels of foreign investment capital that we can and should, then, in the same way, our superannuation funds and other appropriate capital corporate investors got to be able to show that you're actually doing good, appropriate social value investment and social and affordable rental housing is unequivocally the best of those options. And I would argue very strongly that much better value and much more social value in seeing our sector as social infrastructure, arguably much more so than roads, Probably even more so than hospitals and, and schools, mm. because uh, as we said before, none of that stuff works unless you've got a home anyway.
2: I think you mentioned the big elephant for me is the super funds. That is a uh, huge pool that's growing every year dramatically. And if you could sort of legislate a port- portion of that went into housing and there was still a, a profit for purpose for the investors, and it was done rightly, that to me is a a great solution rather than the government trying to fund these projects themselves you, you basically can use people's money and still provide them return and, and solve a big issue so Hopefully that over, that changes.
1: Totally agree, and uh, and in fact, we know that industry super funds, their members, are saying, "What are you doing? What are you doing about this?" Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and and it's not just the obvious ones like the uh, like the building and construction and the local government yep. uh, industry super funds.
0: Well, the starting point really is awareness, and that's why we're having this conversation. And I think you raised. Many, many, many interesting points, but I think the idea that our council, local council elections are coming up and, yeah, to start asking the questions and start actually making it known mm-hmm. that, that we're interested in this. Let's face it, like you mentioned earlier, Michelle, and yes, we've all got mortgages and we've all got the privilege of owning our own home. So we are speaking from a place of privilege and it's nice to be mindful that not everybody is in that situation and some people are in dire need. And I think COVID's brought that to a head too because there's certain people that are disproportionately impacted by lockdowns as well and this can be the tipping yep. point for a lot of people. So it's I think it's important to when you're given a gift as we are, you know, in the sense that we're well off enough to have our own homes, that we also don't forget to help others that are in need in whatever way we can. And if it starts with just agitating a bit, agitating your super fund or agitating the local council, if that's a starting point, then then that's better than doing nothing.
1: It sure is. And uh, all of those things really do make a difference. We've seen it time and time and time again. One voice at the right time to the right ear, one letter, all of those things can um, can really make a positive a positive difference.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Michelle. Thank you. It's been a, a great pleasure. Another meaty chat.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Thank you so much. Take care. Stay safe and well. Cheers. You too.
0: for our next episode, it's a little lighter than some of our interviews, but we're digging into the property styling story. We've got some great tips for you on how to actually approach styling your home, whether it be to live in or to sell, but also some little tips, some warnings for buyers to make sure you don't get lured by very good styling.
2: Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again.
0: And remember, don't be a Dumbo.